0: 75 of the proper mental podcast and just before we get into it i need to let you know that the voting for the mental health blog awards is still open it's open till the 3rd of june and if you're listening to this within that time frame then it would be awesome if you could go and vote for proper mental in the best podcaster category there's a link in the episode notes so pause this episode go and hit that link it's going to take you right the way through to the voting form It only takes a couple of seconds, you can either vote in every category or you can skip all the way to the podcast category, click Proper Mental and submit it. Once you've done that, press play, enjoy episode 75. But anyway, this isn't about that, this is about episode 75 of the Proper Mental podcast and my guest this week is Satvir Nijar, who is a self-harm expert and mental health advocate. Satvi is the founder of Attention Seekers Training and she delivers self-harm awareness training all over the UK to various professionals, parents, carers, students, and anyone else who needs to have this conversation. And I was really keen to have the conversation. I think that self-harm is is one of those scary terms within the mental health conversation, right? And people don't like don't like saying it. They don't like talking about it. I think people are people struggle to understand it. People are scared of getting things wrong. You know, people are scared of making it worse or acknowledging it. People don't know what to do about it. And that's why Satvia's work is so important. You know, her work has a a strong focus on removing the stigma, reducing the fear around the conversation and just having this conversation. And that's exactly what we do in this episode. We chat all about self-harm, what it is, why people do it and what we can do to help. It's a big topic. It's a big conversation. And it was awesome to chat to Satvia and be kind of guided through the more Nuanced aspects, you know. I mentioned at the start that my own knowledge of self harm was quite limited, probably quite misinformed, probably quite stereotypical. So it was awesome to spend some time with Satvia and just kind of break it down and get into it. And I really, really enjoyed. She was wonderful to talk to, and it's one of those, another one of those episodes. Even though we're talking about some quite, quite hard stuff, you know, some quite deep stuff. There's a lot of fun there too, and we had a lot of laughs. You can connect with Satvir on social media, on Twitter, at underscore Satvir Nijar, or on Instagram is at Satvir underscore Nijar. There's links to that in the notes. There's also links to her website. You can read more about her work and her training. And, of course, there's that very special link that's going to allow you to vote for me in the Mental Health Blog Awards. If you want to get hold of me, propermentalpodcast.com, send me an email through the website website. Or catch me on Instagram at Podcast. I'm on all the other socials, but it tends to be Instagram is where I like to spend my time. Other than that, you don't need to know about anything else. This is episode 75 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Satvir Nijar. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. here we are with another episode of the proper mental podcast and my guest this week is Satveer Nijar. how are you mate
1: i'm all right thank you how are you
0: i'm good thank you mate i'm really really good yeah we um we booked this a little while ago it's come around really quick mate
1: <laughs> as it snuck up on me i was like oh no it's today <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it seemed like ages when we uh, put it in the diary but um thank you so much for joining me mate i really really appreciate your time um it seems like i follow you on social media and it seems like um you're at a different like venue to to speak and to train. Um, every few days, are you like super busy at the moment?
1: Put it this way, there's a diesel fuel, a diesel shortage for a reason, um, it's <laughs> me, <laughs> yeah. I'm traveling the country, I've been very fortunate, being back to face-to-face training for a few months now. So up and down the country, delivering my sessions um, in all different settings, predominantly schools, but other organizations and settings too. So I'm very fortunate.
0: Oh, wow. Well, that just goes to show the, um, the need for the conversation, right? The, the fact that you are so busy. And, um, I was kind of like, when I was doing a bit of research for our chat today, it kind of dawned on me how little I know about the topic of self-harm and the things that I do know are probably quite stereotypical, maybe a bit naive. And I yeah. was thinking, you know, is that something that you come across a lot? Is that people think they understand, but really it's they're not, they don't quite know about the nuances and the depth to the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think uh today, from my experience, everyone, just about everyone, has heard of it. Um, but the understanding varies massively from person to person, dependent on their job role, if they're a professional. Um, I do a lot of work with parents and carers for young people. Everyone's heard of it. But their understanding and the stereotypes around it are still quite strong for a lot of people, and um, so that can then lead to sometimes negative responses. You know, after a disclosure of self harm. So it's really about breaking down them stigmas, improving the understanding. So when it there is a disclosure, the response is positive because I think that's one of the big issues. People who you know are self harming, and when they disclose, often the fear is that the person who they're disclosing to doesn't get it and then shuts them down. And then that person's thinking, it took me so much to open up and I've just been shut right back down again. And then it takes a while again to build that confidence.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, um. I suppose there's so many, um, and I include like self-harm, in general in this but there's a lot of words in the conversation just around mental health and mental illness and well-being and there's some words that we seem more scared of than others and i think self-harm is one suicide's another one um and people are are so scared that they're going to get these conversations wrong that they almost don't want to don't want to have them but it's the same with the suicide conversation right by having that conversation you're not going to encourage someone you're going to help them and i think is um self-harm the same the same sort of deal
1: yeah, I, I would certainly back that. I was at a conference recently and someone literally said that as a workplace mental health awareness conference. And someone said, why is it do you think that people aren't talking about self-harm as openly? Because they acknowledge that, you know, more and more conversations are happening and disclosures around things like depression and anxiety. You know, obviously there's always going to be people who are still holding back, but it's more common now for someone to go, you know, I've got depression. I suffer from anxiety um whereas self-harm and like you said suicide is still one of them you don't really want to be saying you're self-harming or you've been suicidal before because it makes the other person awkward <laughs> um, and people like you said there is that whole fear especially around suicide talking about it leads to it um, and if we talk about suicide it's going to lead put, putting ideas in their head is my favorite one you know i don't want to put ideas in their head But it's okay to talk about other things because no way is that putting ideas in someone's head. But we say the word suicide. That's putting the idea in someone's head. But I think that comes down to lack of confidence, really. And, you know, it's I don't have the confidence in having this conversation. So this is my reasoning for not having it. And, you know, thankfully, it is an unjustified reason. But that doesn't mean that people should automatically be able to have the conversation. It's about building people's confidence in having that conversation.
0: Yeah, sure. And I suppose it's like reminding people that I think as human beings, we're all we all I suppose we have to feel like we always have to fix the situation, right? So I've heard people say, um, you know, I don't know if someone talks to me about this stuff, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, you don't have to do anything, you know, yeah, you just have true. to just just be there, right?
1: Yeah, listening is one of the most powerful tools we have. Um, But like you said, we are a nation of wanting to fix. Someone tells me something, I want to fix it and make it better. Otherwise, I feel helpless. I want to be seen to be doing something. And with mental ill health, sadly, sometimes you may not see the results, so to speak, but the impact you can have upon someone can be so, so positive just by giving them some time, asking them how they are. And it's a small things, but I think because it's not tangible in a way, people walk away feeling I did nothing, but they could have done everything for that person on that day.
0: Yeah. It just makes that huge difference in the, in the moment of someone just feeling, feeling seen and feeling safe. Right. And I suppose the more we use these words, the more we have these conversations, you know, it just shines a light on them and it makes it more, palatable i used to work for the nhs um, in a cancer hospital and when i first started working there it was called an oncology center and one of the changes they made is that like when we answered the phones and stuff instead of saying like our oh, oncology center we would say cancer center because yeah. cancer is another word right people kind of they're talking and they'll they'll they're almost mouth it you know so they like talking. Well, the
1: big C remember when yeah, it was a big C now, that's it, oh, got yeah. a big C. um and yeah, people but, I think there is this fear you know I hear people say like, with the work that I do you know very bespoke here looking just at self-harm and it's like oh you know are we normalizing the conversation or we don't want to be normalizing it but we do want to be normalizing the conversation that doesn't normalizing isn't promoting normalizing isn't encouraging normalizing is removing stigma that's what i see normalization of a conversation um so i think it is important whether it's in relation to cancer or self-harm or suicide or anything else we use the correct words to help people open up and take away that stigma and not whisper them either even if you are using it you know when people whisper it like you said yeah. A, I, I can say it, but in a low whisper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. As if that makes any um any difference. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose I'm getting ahead of myself here, um, Satvi, really. If we could rewind a little bit, how do you describe um what it is it that you do?
1: Oh gosh. Um, what do I do? I see it as I go around places, literally anywhere, and I have a, literally I see my delivery as a conversation a conversation when i'm working with young people about mental health mental ill health self-harm and suicide awareness and when i'm delivering to adults a conversation on self-harm and the aim being to improve understanding build confidence remove stigma with the ultimate goal of improving the response to a disclosure of self-harm that's what i do
0: yeah awesome yeah i love that idea of um of it being a conversation right I suppose that just backs up everything we've just we've just said yeah And I suppose it would be very useful um, for myself which means it would be useful for people listening as well if we could just um, maybe break down what constitutes as self-harm because I think that's probably where the stigma starts right is people thinking it's one thing or it's another thing or it's not this or it is that or um, so what kind of falls into the into the bracket of the type of things that you're talking about with your work?
1: So I think it does depend on which definition you're using, and that's an issue I feel in the UK, that different organisations and settings can be working from different definitions. So I always go with the NICE guidelines, National Institute of Clinical Healthcare and Excellence, that looks at self-harm as self-poisoning or self-injury. So it's a slightly narrower definition than we might find in other organisations, but if this is what mental health professionals and doctors and nurses should be working from, that's why I go with it. So we're talking about looking at self poisoning. Um, So not drugs and alcohol, but things like drinking bleach, overdosing on medications. Um, And then when we look at self-injury behaviours, things like um, the cutting, the burning, the scratching, the inserting of objects, hitting yourself, banging your head, them types of behaviours that come together to form self-harm. So not the drugs, the alcohol, the eating disorders, not things like risky sexual behaviours, though they can cause harm to the individual, they might be seen as wider forms of self-harm, but clinicians will be talking about the self-poisoning and self-injury side of things.
0: Right. Okay. And um are we also thinking of self-harm. And I think for today's conversation, we probably are going to have to um speak in quite broad terms, right? Because this is such an individual thing for every person who's going through something. So I suppose there is going to be an element of um of
1: I mean, yeah, I think, you know, there is there is an overlap because the reason someone say turns to gambling behaviors or alcohol or drugs maybe for the exact same reason that someone cuts you know so what can lead to the behaviors could be very similar things and the overlap and the functions that someone gets may be very similar too but i'll be honest when i'm speaking i'll be speaking with a clinical definition in mind
0: yeah sure yeah so i I, I suppose it's it kind of comes down to is it like um maybe like a, a coping mechanism or a an expression of of an underlying thing so i was thinking of it in terms of like for instance you look at an eating disorder and eating disorders tend to be like food is a mechanism and an eating disorder is a is a process and it's very rarely about food right and it's the common misconception that it that it is and that kind of made me think about self harm as well is it more about dealing with something more about trying to process or express something that's like an underlying problem
1: i mean 100 percent. you know there's always going to be you know exceptions to the rule but if we focus on the vast majority um you know self-harm is seen as a coping mechanism you know For the person in that moment, self-harm for them will be serving positive functions, you know. Um, As you said, there is that overlap with things like eating disorders. You know, there's a control aspect of it. There's a release aspect of it. There's a distraction aspect of it. There's a self-punishment aspect of it. It might be about um, numbing yourself or feeling something. It's about communicating how you're feeling and that might be to nobody it could just be to yourself but it's that communication of this is how crap things are you know this is how bad it is I'm really struggling to manage these emotions and it's a way of managing the emotions so in that moment for that person the vast majority it is a coping mechanism
0: yeah a way of dealing with something that's that's yeah. under underlying
1: what I always say is self-harm is a symptom of the underlying distress not the problem you know it is a symptom and I think sometimes part of the issue is the response to self-harm can be solely on the symptom at times and people forget the distress behind it. And the sole focus becomes on dealing with that symptom, you know, stopping or changing the behaviour. And please do not get me wrong. You know, um, we've got to reduce risks to the individual. We've got to make someone as safe as possible. And some people engage in very high risk, medically high risk forms of self-harm, you know, with a threat to someone's life. And of course, that should always be the priority. But if you only focus on the behaviour, we're going to be missing the point, aren't we? It's about what's behind it. Because if you haven't dealt with the distress, that's going to be simmering, then they're potentially going to look for another way to deal with the distress. Um, so, yeah, self-harm, for the vast majority is definitely the symptom of the underlying distress. And it's a way of coping with that distress.
0: Yeah, sure. And do you find when with your work in schools in particular, that the, the way that you're the way that your conversation, the way that your training is responded to is different between like the young people and the parents or the, or the teachers, because I've, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, yeah I...
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> God, um, I just kind of think like, I'm looking at the broader picture. And like I said, my overall view of self-harm as a, as a concept is probably like very naive, but it is something we that is more associated with like a younger demographic, I suppose is why I'm asking.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll answer the first part of the question first. So is it received differently between in schools with students, parents and teachers? It is because one of the reasons is they're different sessions the parent and teacher session is very much training with a sole focus on self-harm awareness with students. I don't know about you, but if I had to go to an assembly between the ages of 11 and 18 and I was told it was on self-harm, I wouldn't want to go. (laughs) So, you know, I I don't do an assembly on self-harm. I do it on the general mental health. But in the last 10, 15 minutes of that conversation of an hour, we start talking about suicide and self-harm. And for a lot of young people, this is the first time there's been an open conversation on self-harm and suicide. And it's a conversation that is about, you know, what does it mean to be suicidal? What does it mean to self-harm? How can you help yourself? How can you help somebody else? And then we bring it back to the general mental health. And in my experience, and I've delivered to tens of thousands of students in the last decade is that Firstly, there's no denying it. There can be a lot of disclosures after I've left um, and young people disclose to me. And some of these people didn't know about. So it's almost giving them permission to come forward. People get upset in sessions. Again, there's no denying that. But, you know, people can get upset in any session because you never know what's going to relate to someone. But they stay through it. I think that's really powerful as well. You know, young people will be like, actually, I want to stay even if they are a little bit upset. Um, but what young people often say is, and I can only speak from my experience and what I've been told is, they find it really useful. They enjoyed the on- honest conversation. It's very relevant to them. You know, they want more. And the parents and teachers, it's, it's lovely because sometimes people don't want to come to the session because of the stigma associated with it, especially as a parent. You know, if you turn up, it means your child's self-harming. Um, but I think over the last few years, especially... There's been a noticeable change that increasing numbers of parents are attending just in case. And more and more young people are supporting friends who are self-harming. So to knowledge themselves up and build that confidence and look at a topic. And for those parents who have had a child self-harming, it's so lovely because, you know, when someone goes out of their way to drop an email to say, today I understood my child better, you know, I've gone back and had a conversation Um, or parents are going, I had no idea about self-harm, but, you know, if it happened in my house tomorrow, I feel more confident in responding. The same with teachers, you know, Um, I've got that confidence now. And it's nice when you hear from someone eight years ago who was on your training and they're like, I still apply it. So it's really positive. There's always going to be exceptions, you know, but from my experience, positive.
0: Yeah, I just think that's wonderful. Like, but like looking at the young people, I suppose, And so many people will be going through something and maybe using self-harm as a way of coping with that thing. And it's quite likely that their friends will know about it, right? And you mentioned the disclosures there. And, you know, a lot of people want to talk about this stuff and they don't know how, and they don't know who to, and they don't know the words. they don't
1: know how, they don't know who to. And that's why, you know, I'm really passionate about the work I do in schools, you know, because I want it to be that that student can disclose to any member of staff and that member of staff have the confidence just hold that initial conversation because that initial conversation that initial disclosure the way that person gets responded to who's disclosed can be the difference potentially between them continuing to engage in support or shutting down and you know if we don't have that confidence about the topic we don't have that knowledge there's that fear there you might end up inadvertently saying something that makes that person think no thank you but going back to a point you made earlier, you know, I'm talking about schools now, but self-harm happens right across the ages. It could start at any stage in someone's life. And I think it's, you know, so important to remember that because in the media, sometimes it is portrayed as a young person's thing, you know, under 25s or a teenage girl phenomena. And I don't know if you're a 48 year old man, self harming, you might be thinking, oh, shit, I can't go to my GP because I'm not a 15 year old girl. You know, if you're a 63 year old woman or man, you feel you can't come forward and seek support. So we need to make sure we're breaking them barriers down because it's Absolutely, anyone. I don't just deliver in schools. I was laughing because a few months ago I was in a car dealership, you know, delivering there, you know, construction sites. It's everywhere and anywhere, you know, adults are self harming and it's not targeted in workplaces to parents of teenagers. You know, there's so many professionals, whether it's from the police, paramedics, you know, these construction companies or water companies who, after a session, email me and say, yeah, I could relate to everything you said there. That's me. And these are adults, but they're fearful in disclosing because of that stigma. None of my colleagues know. That really saddens me. Not saying that someone should have to promote it, but I always say the reason for keeping quiet shouldn't be shame. That shouldn't be your reason for holding back. You have the right to privacy. You don't have to share like I do standing on a public platform, but it makes me sad when someone is ashamed of what they've been through.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's such a lovely way to put it. You know, if someone to feel that they can't, like you say, you know, no one has to share on a big scale, but to feel that like they mm. can't at all because of, mm. yeah, because of what it is. And and in reality, it's just someone who's hurting, right? It's exactly. just someone who's- someone who yeah.
1: trying to manage that distress and get through a very difficult situation for them. And society might not see that situation as difficult, you know, but for them, it's their distress. And I think that's something we need to remember, you know, distress is so subjective um, and people manage it in different ways. And who are you to judge me? And who am I to judge you in how I manage that distress? I'm trying to get through something because sometimes the alternative is I die, you know? I I can't get through it. So I feel I can't manage. So it's important to remember the distress that someone is going through if they've turned to self-harm.
0: Yeah, sure. I um, I recorded an episode recently with a lady called Kath Benfield, who's an OCD advocate. And she said to me that, there is as many different types of OCD as there is people with OCD, you know, Mm. it's so individual and I kind of, that's something that made me think of self-harm as well. You know, people's the reason because I bet, I bet you get asked about the why a lot, right? I bet people always say, well, why do people do it? And yeah,
1: and it's it's so hard because I, I, you know, my training sessions, I never make anything easy for someone. I had a group yesterday and I was like, I can tell you what can lead to self-harm, but I'm not going to make it easy. Because I think we throw this phrase around psychological distress and trauma. You know, adverse childhood experiences are all very valid things. But when you actually sit there and then think about what that means, you know, what is psychological distress and trauma? Like, really think about it. And I think when we start attaching their psychological distress and trauma with, you know, for people who are self-harming, I think it can lead people to be, oh, they must have gone through X, Y, Z. Well, what happens if I've gone through A, B, C, you know? Does that mean I can't be self-harming? And it's, it becomes this thing where we're almost trying to fit someone into the narrative that we've heard So if it's a teenager it's got to be body image it's got to be academic pressure it's got to be bullying it's got to be social media it's got to be sexual gender identity which are some of the common experiences that people have disclosed as to why they've led to self-harm as a young person but they're like five six reasons for me it could be because my parents are splitting up it could be because my best mate stopped talking to me but the listener might be thinking oh no we're waiting for sat there to give me one of the reasons that i've read about <laughs> she's not actually lying yeah she needs to sort it out <laughs> you know so i think it, it's important to remember you know i always say in training distress is subjective and as a society sometimes naturally you know we relate don't we you know if i said to you i self harmed because i've gone through a relationship breakdown you might be going well i went through a relationship breakdown and i didn't self-harm so why is she we're different people You know, we're unique individuals. It's not you're strong and I'm weak and pathetic and that's why I have self-harm. It's just because we're different. We manage stress in different ways.
0: Yeah, that's um, like such a big part of the stigma around all different aspects of mental health and mental illness. And I was poorly for a long time and um, I had a very normal average upbringing Mm -hmm. and there's no trauma in my life. And then when I broke, you know, and when I was really like in the pits, one of the reasons I didn't say anything was because I thought, well, how, how can I, how can I be feeling like this? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a guilt, isn't
1: it? And I think some people have this, you know, it's like, but I've got a really nice life, you know, I've got a house and, you know, I've I've got, if you're a young person, I've got nice parents. If if you're an adult, I've got nice parents. I'm in a secure relationship. This, 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 everything's good. You know, I I shouldn't be self-harming, you know, there's people much worse off than me because of the association with broken home, this, that, the other, and please don't get me wrong, the fewer protective factors someone has in life, the more vulnerable they will be to poor mental health and thereby things like self-harm and suicidal thoughts. But just because on the surface to society and yourself, life looks perfect, and I'll do that in air quotes, um, it doesn't mean you can't be struggling. You know, it's mental ill health. People get poorly, people struggle
0: yeah whatever someone is going through is relevant to them in that moment right and as exactly. soon as we yeah as soon as we differ from that then it just adds to people it, you know it just takes away from them being able to have these conversations be able mm-hmm. to talk about stuff be able to share and get help ultimately which is the sort of got to be the aim right of um, yeah. of uh, yeah of having these these conversations yeah did you from like your own experience that did you have to like learn to talk about this stuff because I'm, I'm i focus a lot on on the talking conversation the lived experience conversation because we it's very common in the mental health community like encouraging people to speak but sometimes that's all we do right It's just ask people to speak and i always think we never tell people like how hard it is we never tell people who to speak to we never tell them the words to use and for me personally it took me years to learn how to talk about what happened to me and what I went through um was it the same for yourself that you had to kind of figure it all out and um because so you seem to
1: do you mean like on a public platform or do you mean like to therapists and doctors and the professionals
0: yeah I mean I suppose on a public platform you know
1: um well if people haven't gather- gathered I've, I've got a big mouth um so I've always been a, a chatty person so to speak <laughs> and did I I think, I'll be absolutely honest with you, uh, I I don't tell lies, in my 20s, when I first started um, speaking up in my mid-20s, I was angry in my 20s, I was a very angry person, Um, and I'm South Asian, Indian Sikh, I was quite angry at my culture, at my community, Um, I'm not going to say religion, because I'm not a religious person, but it was more so the Asian community, I was very angry at them because of the experiences I'd had. And I won't lie, part of me speaking up back then was to pee people off, to be that rebel. Because I've grown up in a culture, as British as I am, I'm still very Indian, of you don't talk, you know, you don't share things with people, especially people who aren't our community, you know, so with a British community, not my views, it's just what I was brought up with, you know. And so I was thought, well, screw you, you know, I'm going to share that this goes on. And initially I probably wasn't ready I, not probably I definitely wasn't ready um but it was a very angry conversation I was having I was almost hunting out debates on like Asian radio stations and stuff you know just to be the controversial person and I'll give you the truth and that did lead to a backlash you know I I did get a backlash from the community from my family um but then as my health improved and I was able to articulate myself slightly better, i.e. minus the anger, (laughs) uh, it it did become easier, but I had to be ready. You know, I was starting to talk about my experiences in the early thousands when there was a big push for, as the phrase was then, service users, you know, and lived experience talk, and it's almost like, you know, you got carted out in a conference or something to share your sad story and you know and it's like i've got to bring out a tissue and then you got carted back in as a professional would explain why you're so screwed up and what's happened you know and how it's going to change and i'll I was there one day and i'm thinking what is going on here you know because i remember asked, being asked to share my experiences at a conference with a lot of um psychiatrists and sharing experiences as means a good, bad and ugly. And, you know, there were some negative experiences like the vast majority of people who have struggled with their mental health and had contact with professionals have had. So within that journey, I shared, you know, and this was a bit hard when I got this response from this person, um, you know, this type of professional. And when it was time for questions, one guy in particular, psychiatrist got very angry. This didn't happen and started shouting at me. And I broke down. And um, thankfully, I was working for an organization who had my back 100%, and you know, were like, that's highly inappropriate because they know that wouldn't have happened to a professional. Um, and I think it was very hard back then, but over the years, things have improved massively. Lived experience is embraced much better. We're not just simply carted out. You know, people like me can be seen as sharing my own experience. But what I do in training is entwine that with the academics. Uh, so people do it in different ways. They either share their personal journey, they deliver training or they do a combination like I do. And I think it's really powerful. but I think you've got to be ready and if you're working for an organization, that organization has to be fully supporting you because it, it can be very tough sharing, you know, especially if you're not quite ready or you're having a wobbly day. So.
0: yeah very much so do you find you have to kind of with the work that you do now that you have to kind of plan whether it's like breaks or rests or you know just to give yourself a bit of breathing space from being focused on this this deeper stuff all the time
1: yeah no um i'm i'm not the you know you're not going to be doing a podcast with there on self-care um <laughs> <laughs> I unfortunately, thank goodness, my other half has gone out because she'll be like, no, she doesn't. (laughs) I I won't lie. I'm not um, brilliant at looking after myself, but in the sense of, you know, give myself time out and rest breaks. And I'm not that person at the moment. Maybe one day I will be. But I think I do, without people realising it, put things in to protect myself. For example, if you came to a talk today and you came to a talk in 10 years, you'd hear the same part of my childhood shared. So I think that's what I do, you know, Um I, I share the same part because I'm comfortable with it. And this is no disrespect to anybody who ever attends any of my sessions, but it's almost like verbatim regurgitating the same parts. And that for me is a protective side. I'll always answer any questions, but I don't have to share from birth to 40 years old you know I can share the parts I want to because that's enough to give context to the situation and I think that's how I protect myself yeah
0: yeah I love that I really really relate to that I kind of when I think of it from my own point of view Mm -hmm. I call it almost um, a rehearsed vulnerability Mm. you know so yeah there's bits of me that if i'm podcasting if i'm on someone else's show and they ask for my story then there's there's a version yeah. and i can i can drop in and out of that drop exactly. of a hat yeah, yeah. 100 and that
1: doesn't and again you know this doesn't mean any disrespect to any of our listeners and people who engage in our sessions but it's it's just a way to protect there's no lies in there it's nothing it's just this is a section i'm comfortable with. Like my daughter was very ill and I didn't really talk about the impact that had on me until three years after she was better and now I will drop it in every now and again when relevant but while she was still very poorly in hospital it wasn't a conversation I was having except when there was a couple of times it was very appropriate and relatable to the circumstance but I struggled a lot after that and that's when I decided this isn't the time you know you need to work through this.
0: Yeah. And as well as like protecting yourself, it's also protecting the people that you're speaking to, that you're training, because sometimes I think that, you know, like from the podcast point of view, I think, well, why am I doing this? Why am I asking this question? You know, does this serve the people that are listening who ultimately, you know, their experience is what it's all about, right? So it's always thinking like, you know, I get this person on and you know, is this serving anyone if we kind of like like drill down into this certain area and often it's not you know there's nothing worse than like trauma for the sake of t- trauma or trying mm. to collect sad stories that doesn't help people does it that's yeah. um it's a different type of sharing i think
1: yeah i agree
0: yeah sure so it's um yeah it's tricky i'm just going to check my um my notes here sat there let's see what else um what else i've got what would you say that you're the some of the the biggest barriers are to someone who's um, experiencing self harm to getting the help that they need.
1: Well, firstly, anybody experiencing mental ill health at the moment, one of the biggest barriers is a service provision, <laughs> waiting list timings. You know, so that's going to be right across the board for anybody who's struggling with their mental health. Specifically around self harm, um, fear of the consequence of disclosure regardless of age, if I tell you, and you being a professional, what are the consequences of my disclosure going to be? Am I going to get kicked out of school, college, university? Am I going to lose my job? Are my children going to get taken away from me? You know, as a young person, Are my parents going to be angry or my carer are they going to shout at me are they going to take me out of school are they going to stop me going on that trip are they just going to cry and make me feel guilty as an adult is my you know if i'm in a relationship is my partner going to leave me if i'm not you know how are my friends going to handle this what are people around me going to say especially being an adult because of that added stigma i think fear of the consequences of disclosure a big one Also, the simplicity of some responses. Oh, come on, stop doing that. You know, stop doing it. What are you doing that to yourself for? you know, go for a walk, you know, as ideal as that sounds, (laughs) you know, if it was that easy, I would have gone for a walk, guys. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Walking can be absolutely brilliant, but you've got to be at that stage where you are able to go for a walk, you know, the time of crisis, I'm not going to go, okay, I'm feeling really, really awful, I could cut or go for a walk, you know, so I think it's about knowing the correct response. So the fear of not getting that Correct response, and people go. Well, what is the correct response? Listening, understanding that in this moment, this is that person's coping mechanism, appreciating that, and looking at the underlying issues if and when they're ready. And if they're not, then saying I'm here for you, you know, and giving them that space and time, but not making it an elephant in the room. And I think one, I can only speak, you know, well, not oh, just me speaking, but I know other people who have self harm may be able to relate to this. I know one of my fears was that if I tell you I self-harm, you're just going to focus on stopping me self-harming and you're going to take away the only coping mechanism I have. And what am I left with? You know, I'll turn to something else. And for example, I did. I turned towards alcohol for a period of time, you know, or I turned to lashing out at people, not a particularly proud moment of my life. But, you know, in my early 20s, I I'd just get into fights and arguments and screaming matches and all sorts of things to get that release you know, and the detrimental consequences of them types of behaviours, I'm sure you can imagine, wasn't great. So I think it's a fear of the response and a fear of disclosure and consequences. I think that's a big one.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Were you um from your own story, Satvir, were you quite young when you started to, um, to experience these things? The self-harm? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was about 12 when I started self-harming Um And as I always say, you know, we're talking 1994 here because I'm well old, but it was it was I didn't even realize my behavior was self-harm. You know, I was just doing what I needed to do to help me get to my objective, which for me was university. You know, I'm doing something because I need support in getting there because of the circumstances I found myself in. And as far as I'm concerned, it worked for the next, you know, five, six years. I'm alive. Nobody's found out, and it's getting me through. On one step closer. So you know, twelve years, and I didn't know anyone who was self-harming. I went to a really middle-class school. People didn't talk about this. It's 1994. Nobody was talking about mental health. Uh, it's not on TV. It's, there's no internet, you know, because everyone blames the internet for self harm. Self harm's been around a lot, a lot longer than the internet has, you know. So uh, you know, for me, starting off at about twelve.
0: Wow yeah and how did you start to because I'm always interested in recovery I always think that's the part of the the conversation that maybe gets um you know maybe not maybe skipped over a little bit in especially conversations around lived experience so what were your what were your steps to getting help you mentioned some of the things that you know different behaviors and stuff you were going through in your 20s but how did you go to kind of work through that and start to to get help with it Or
1: I mean I had unofficial kind of support um, from the age of 15, 16 in school, i.e. nice teachers, because it was different time back then, not the kind of pastoral level support you get now, just nice teachers who knew something wasn't quite right and gave me the space just to sit, you know, or have a chat if I needed to. And when I look back now, that's probably really where my support journey began, even though I didn't see it then, because I started building up trust in Adults and professionals, because my journeys of abuse, you know, so I didn't really trust adults and things. So having that was really positive. Official support I had thrown at me from the age of nineteen, um, after I disclosed self harm to a doctor, and you know everything came my way: psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors, crisis mental health team, home treatment team—you name it, I had it. But I didn't engage. You know, I was in and out of psych units and things, and I wasn't ready. I, I wasn't and it was probably about 24 years old as things became more settled in my life that I was then ready to engage. Because you can have all the support thrown at you, but you have to want to engage in that support. But I also think services had their priorities wrong for me. They were too focused on dealing with what I call my daddy issues. <laughs> um, and I, I wasn't quite ready to deal with them because I'm homeless. You know, I'm a single mom. I've got no money. I've got no education, I've got no friends. And I think as people, other organisations, and to them, they might be like, yeah, but I just filled out that housing form for her. But that made the difference because i got the housing. And then i got on the right benefits. And then my daughter's in nursery. And as things started settling a little bit more, my distress has decreased. And also I can start focusing on them, daddy issues that I've got. And, you know, the, the traumas that I'd gone through as a child. But the other issue was, I'd gone through traumas as an adult as well after I'd left home. So there's a lot to unpick. But as some of the cloud, you know, passed, i.e. the housing, the money, the friendships, I was able to do that. So for me, that was about 24 years old.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's really powerful, the idea of having to be ready for it. Yeah. You know, like I, I get that a lot. I get that. I've been at two sort of big episodes. I, I call them breakdowns because that's a good way to describe them, but it's I probably need to find better words for it. Um, But I know that the second one is a result of not sorting out the first one properly, you know, and not fully engaging and going through the motions and telling people I was engaging. And, yeah. you know, you know, from the outside, I looked like I was a, a model um, person in therapy and doing all the work but i wasn't committed You're Ticking the boxes, ticking the boxes yes, going that's...
1: to the people yeah um, but, yeah this, this being ready i think is really hard you know i had a, a massive breakdown three years ago um and it took a lot for me to open up and say you know oh, actually guys i'm suicidal i'm really struggling and because it had been a build-up of stuff that i would pushed aside for years and just been smiling and getting on with life but like you said it creeps up and gets you but the problem is, you know, I, I've been, I'm waiting three years in May for therapy, you know, and I was at the stage of having the um, crisis mental health team visiting my house and I still not had therapy. And I just get letters now saying, do you still want to be on the waiting list? And it is it, very frustrating, you know, because my fear is the letter will come through tomorrow and I'm working or the letter will come through. And I think, well, you know what there guys, I'm doing all right at the moment. I don't need this. And come six months, I have another massive breakdown because I never dealt with it. So it is hard because you might be ready when services aren't. Services might be ready and you've given up or you're thinking, forget it. I'm better now. I'm OK. It's so, so tough for people.
0: Yeah. that I when you're ready, you're ready, right? And that, yeah. that window it might not stay open as long as you need it to stay open. Yeah. I've done all of those things. Yeah. I um, remember through work a few years ago, they put me in for therapy through the NHS and I waited for it. And I went to one session and I just happened to go on a really good day. I felt great. The sun was shining. I got (laughs) out of work for the (laughs) afternoon. And she said to me, do you want to come back? I was like, no, I'm fine.
1: Fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fast forward six months and like all hell's breaking loose. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's, it's really, um, yeah, I mean that's the tricky thing, isn't it, about the whole conversation is that the at the moment there's just too much too much pressure on the on the system right it's just um yeah. there is,
1: and, you know unfortunately we don't have bags and bags of money if i did i would be throwing it at the system but on a positive note though you know grassroots projects popping up left right and center helping people you know there's a text you know text crisis services online support you know some brilliant resources getting therapy online can be fantastic as well for people it gives that flexibility doesn't matter where i am in the country i can just log in on zoom and have that conversation it's not for Everybody, but you know, at least we're getting some alternative options. And even though they may only be in the interim, at least someone's not just going right. You're on a waiting list, and that's it. You know, so there are options if people do want to take them, but they may not be for everyone. Yeah, so d- positive.
0: yeah, definitely. The amount of variation that's out there, and I always think people need different things at different times yeah. as well. And of everyone course. needs something different. Yeah, and there's some incredible organisations and
1: absolutely fantastic.
0: I had no idea these things existed until a couple of years ago, you know, and then suddenly there's just, there's just so much. And I'm sure there's even more that I've got to, um, got to find out about, you know, but yeah. that's, that in itself is, um, it's hopeful, isn't it? And it's inspiring. Yeah. And it's just, just lovely. Yeah. So what, what are your plans moving forward, Satvia? Have you just like, have you got more, is it more like term related Will you get the summer off? Or, uh...
1: Oh no, no, Satvia works forever. Um, so <laughs> know um i because because of the variety of my work like i said it's not just in schools um i tend to work throughout the year the quietest period for anybody who delivers training tends to be august because people with families tend to take their summer holidays then and then people can't be let off for training in workplaces schools colleges universities are shut so that's out and the two weeks of christmas but other than that i'm all year round So I love it. I'm very fortunate. I'm in a job that I'm very passionate about. And I love the diversity of my work. And I love, especially over the last three, four years, that the conversation is moving wider than schools because I'm very passionate about adults seeking support for mental ill health, talking about self-harm and opening up about it because it's heartbreaking, you know, to meet, for example, a couple of years ago, an adult man, late 50s, who at the end of the session loitered, and waited till everyone had gone and said to me, I've never told anyone this before, but I used to self-harm, you know, and I'm thinking, gosh, he's carried that his whole life, you know. So for me, I think it's so important to give people a place where either they walk away and they don't feel alone or they feel that they can disclose or they feel more confident in supporting someone. And I'm very privileged to be in a position where people are saying I can do that for them
0: yeah yeah that's wonderful that's really powerful right and it's working on i suppose all the different levels like you say whether someone's experiencing it or they suspect someone they know might be going through it or they might have to help someone go through it to be able to kind of come at it from all angles that's like um that's really empowering i think yeah and your your company is called um attention seekers right and, yeah. it, it, and that's um is that another sort of uh, of the stigma element around the whole yeah, yeah
1: you know I am that I'm that person it was never going to be called self-harm awareness training um it's one of the most common myths I hear you know oh, it's just attention seeking isn't it just a cry for help just a phase everything starts with just a and I thought oh for goodness sake um so you know at the end of the day you know when we say the phrase it's just attention seeking i find it so dismissive like so dismissive as i oh, don't worry about it. it's just attention someone is seeking attention you know if someone's telling you that they're self-harming or accidentally on purpose showing you injuries or dropping hints that they could be self-harming it's important to remember the vast majority of people who self-harm don't tell anyone they do it in private it's a very private act for the majority please don't get me wrong sometimes people will self-harm in front of others but often at points of crisis you know so things are really bad so if I'm not telling you or showing you or dropping hints about it I am seeking attention you know help me <laughs> if you then just go I can't see it <laughs> and turn around the message that I'm getting is you don't care And that's going to add to my internal feelings of, I don't matter, I'm pathetic, I'm shit, I'm, you know, all these negative thoughts that are commonly associated with people who are in distress. So what do you think I'm going to go and do, Tom? I'm going to go and self-harm, yeah, because here you go, you've just proven to me I'm nothing. You know, there's a potential that it just adds to that. So yeah, just attention seeking, you know, is a a phrase that really makes me And I know it still happens because I do tasks in training where I make people write down common myths and stigmas and phrases that they hear around self-harm. And that one always comes at the top. It's just attention seeking. You know, it's just a cry for help. Let's give that person the attention. Maybe I don't know how to tell you that I'm getting abused at home. Maybe I don't know how to tell you I'm struggling with money. Maybe I don't know how to tell you I'm scared of coming out and saying I'm gay or bi or trans. But I do know how to tell you that I've cut myself or overdosed on some tablets. And what I want you to get from that conversation isn't that I cut myself or overdosed on tablets or punched a wall. What I want you to get is I'm in distress because the self-harm's a symptom. It's a communication of that distress.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I just... It, when you look at it out of context the idea that any form of a cry for help could be like not a positive thing right if someone's crying for help that's huge that's that sounds massive. like an it's...
1: inconvenience so it's like, oh it's just a cry for help yeah leave <laughs> them
0: to <laughs> it yeah yes. yeah oh mate yeah when you put it like that it's um yeah and it's such a common phrase right we've all we've all it heard is. it I don't yeah.
1: think it's okay to say you know I've i've met people who say you know we should say seeking attention i'm like no we should say attention seeking and just change what it means in society you know um there's not drop the word just and actually it's not a bad thing you know yeah. we promote help seeking behaviors i am asking for help you know so let's give it to me <coughs> excuse me
0: so in your experience Satvir, what would be the best way to if someone like does disclose to you or if you think that there's someone in your life that might be dealing with self-harm at the moment what would be the 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 best way to kind of support them and to, and to look after them?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think it's two different questions. If someone discloses to you that they're self-harming, and I'm not here to patronise anyone, but firstly, stay calm. You know, don't be shocked and angry and judgmental. Oh, what are you doing that to yourself for? Don't be so silly. Let's go for a walk. You know, it's about saying, okay, check yourself for a moment. This is a coping strategy. Remember, self-harm is a symptom of the underlying distress, okay? So firstly, you might say, I can see you struggling right now, because that's what you can see. If they've disclosed their self-harming, you can see that they're struggling, yeah? So you're focusing on the underlying issues. Best practice would be, you know, do they need medical attention? Again, this depends on their role, if it's a friend, family member, or if you're a professional, how you respond to this. But we do need to ascertain, does this person need any medical attention? You know, that's important. Um just on a side note, anybody who has said that they've overdosed on medications or drank some poisonous substances requires urgent medical attention. The same with someone who's, say, swallowed or inserted foreign objects. But other things like cuts and burns, you know, use common sense to respond. But then if you're if we're talking about a friend here, OK, how we're responding is by acknowledging that they've self-harmed. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I can see your distress, do you want to talk about what's been happening that's got you to this point, is there anything I can do to help, and that might be your first conversation they might go no I just wanted you to know say okay. Um, And it might be that you share some organizations with them or tell them where to get support from but what do you do the second time? Because this is the thing that people panic with. Should I ask them, have you self-harmed since I've last seen you? (laughs) No. Yeah. Because it's like, if you came up to me, Tom, and you're like, I sat there, you know, last week, you said you cut yourself. Have you done it again this week? If I say no, do I get a sticker? And if I say yes, are you going to cry? You know, because all you're then measuring is the behavior Um, So, what we might want to do is check in, but in in a different way. You know, how have you been feeling? Yeah, it's been all right, a bit of a tough week. Okay. Um, Since I saw you last week, have you had the urge to self harm, whether you have or haven't? I got a different response because I might say to you, you know what, Tom, I haven't. But on Monday, I was struggling a little bit and I did think about it, but I didn't. so what was different? And we could go, oh, that's really positive. you know. So what did you do different? Because you had some crappy feelings, but you came through them. So we're not just measuring the behaviour. Because it can be like, oh, well done, Sat. It's been two weeks and you haven't self-harmed. And the whole conversation becomes about that. And then I feel like a failure if I have or I hide it from you. So we don't want to make it an elephant in the room either where we never talk about it again or just do raised eyebrows and stretchy necks So have you, you know, have you been... You know, this kind of weird thing that people do. <laughs> um, And then obviously if you suspect a friend self-harming and when people say, I suspect my friend self-harming, it's often because they've seen some types of injuries on them. Um, And I'm going with like the forearm. Obviously self-harm can happen on any part of the body. If you're suspecting it, it's because you've seen something. Again, don't do elephant in the room. You might, but don't say, what's that? I saw some burns or cuts. What you might say is, you know, how have you been feeling uh, recently? Or I know you've been a bit down. I couldn't help but notice there were some marks on your arm. I just wanted to check that you're okay. So you've said it. You know, you're not gonna accuse though. Have you been self-harming? It's putting it in a more gentler way. But no, if you ask the question, the person has a right not to respond. I think that's really important. Because I think sometimes we think, well, I asked, so you better respond. I don't owe you anything. But what you've said in that, and I might even get angry with you. and be like, what the hell, Tom? Nothing there. He said, that's fine. But I just noticed that I wanted to bring it up. Remember, I'm here if you want to chat.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. I suppose it's all about thinking about the person. And with all the will in the world, quite often as human beings, even when we're doing something with the best intentions, we try and make it about us. And I suppose it's just respecting the the fragility and the and how precious the situation is and just kind of yeah making it about and
1: acknowledging it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, mate. Absolutely love it. And I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, Sat there, It's um sure. it's absolutely flown by. And um, yeah, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: you for listening from the proper mental
1: podcast please like and subscribe this five stars